0: And we come to a wonderful verse, a verse I've been looking forward to us um, coming to since we started Hebrews. It's a verse that you've likely know and have heard. It's a standalone verse in many ways, yet it's a verse within a context. It's not alone, and, and we need to look at this verse not only uh, what it means on its own, but what it means within the context more importantly. So let us hear the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And this is the Word of God. May He bless the reading of it. As I mentioned, you have probably heard this verse and are familiar with this verse, but what is the context? Why was it it written? Well, the context is this, is that the people of, of God in the past had received the Word of God, but yet they had rebelled against God and rebelled against His Word. Specifically, God is telling us here in Hebrews, looking back at the wilderness generation, the Israelites in the wilderness, as they were wandering in the wilderness, they wandered and did not receive the promised land because of their disobedience. They heard God's Word and they rejected God's Word. Many of them made it, may have outwardly said, yes, we receive God's Word, but they did not inwardly receive God's word. Their hearts inwardly rejected God's word. So therefore, this morning, let us hear this word of God, that we might not reject it. That's the point of the text. Now you'll notice this, it's connected with the word for, in verse 12. Verse The word for connects us to all that has been said before. Verse 11, in many ways, is a is this uh, culminating point where it reaches a crescendo of the argument, where God tells us this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's a warning for the hearers of this word to not fall short, to not reject God, and then it goes on to conclude with this word, For God's Word actually knows your heart. God's Word is so powerful that it divides that which you really cannot divide. So I want us to notice three things about the text this morning. First, it's about the Word of God, so we will see what it is. What is the Word of God the second thing that the text teaches us is this, is what its qualities are or its attributes are. What are the characteristics of the Scripture, of God's Word? And finally, what does it do? Does God's Word actually do something and accomplish something? The first thing I want you to notice is that it says the Word of God. We're speaking about the Word. What is a Word? Well, a Word is a vehicle of communication. It's what we put syllables to thoughts that we have in our head, right? That's what a word is. It's a way of communicating something. And so when we see the word of God, we have to automatically think God communicating. That's what it means to have a word. And whose word is this? Well, we're told it is God's word. And so we're dealing with the God of the universe, the God that created and brought all things in, by speaking his word, let there be light, and there was light, it is this God that has given us his word. And when we think of this word that we have, I want us to see the triunity of it. What do I mean by the triunity of it? Well, when God speaks, he speaks as our triune God. You'll notice in chapter 1, in verse 5, the text says this, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And that's referring to God the Father. And so the word of God is the Father's word. Well, if you go over to chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, Jesus is speaking, excuse me, in verse 11, it says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... And that is Jesus now speaking. If you go to chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So the word that we have is a word of our triune God. It is the Father, it is the Son, and it is the Spirit speaking. This is an important point. If I'm reading the Scriptures, it is accurate for me to say this to you. The Holy Spirit says this to you. It's entirely accurate for me to tell you this. God says this in verse 11 of the text. It's entirely appropriate for me to read an epistle that was written from the hand of Paul and say, Jesus says these words to you right now because the word that we have is a word from our triune God that he has given us. That is so crucial to get down in the depths here because so often... People will look at something written by Paul and'll we'll see that it's out of step with our society today and they'll say, well paul really didn't Paul really didn't understand our advanced enlightenment thinking. Well, how about Jesus because it's Jesus' words? every word of this scripture is a red letter. And you know what I mean by that, that we make the letters red that Jesus spoke. Well, we ought to make every letter red because every letter was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His Word. And this is a work of our triune God. And the second thing about this Word, we see it's God's Word, it's the triune God's Word, but there's something else about this Word that we also have to note that bounces off of it, is it's immutable. What does immutable mean? It means it doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's an unchanging word that God has given us. In fact, we see a glimpse of this in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 17. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie... Notice these two things, these two attributes that are are stated here of God. God is unchanging. You and I change, we're in a constant state of change. We change our mind, we change our clothes, we change our thoughts on things. God does not change. But there's also something else that speaks of the the the, the veracity of God's word, and that is the truth of God's word. God cannot lie. Is it impossible for God to do something? Yes, God cannot lie. God will never act outside of His character and His nature. He can't, because that is who He is. God is truth, and so the very word you have, it will never change, and it is always truth, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter where society is, God's word is unchanging truth to every generation that has ever existed. It is His word. It never changes. It's not in constant flux like our world. What a reminder this is, though. I I want us to go back to the idea of a word being a vehicle of thought or of communication. Think of the grace of that that our triune God would speak to us. Nothing compels him to speak to us. He's not obligated to speak to you and I. we, We couldn't barter with him to get this word from him. We didn't earn this word, but rather it means this. If we have the word of God, it is because he gave it to us out of his good pleasure. If it wasn't from his good pleasure, it means that he was in some way obligated to give us this word. God's not obligated to do anything. But out of his mere good pleasure, God has given us this word. He has made himself known, and it has pleased him to make himself known. It was according to his pleasure to make himself known to us. Now, think about that for just a second. What is it that we have in our hands? We have the word of God. You know, in the catechism that we use in our Sunday school classroom, and many of us use this in our home, we ask this question, what is the Word of God? And our children could answer this. The Bible is the Word of God. We we hold the Word of God. This is His communication to us in this book. You think about that for a second. What a powerful thing that the God of the universe that spoke all things into existence maintains all things by the power and through the power of his word gives us a collection of his words. The infinite God gives us actually a finite description of himself to us. That is God's grace. What a treasure we have here, isn't it? Is this not the greatest treasure that we could have as the word of God? You know, you oftentimes get that question, if you, if you had to be stuck on an island and you could only take one book with you, what book would you take? Is there any greater book than the Word of God? It's not like any other book. It's not like reading some of the great classics. It's not like reading a great novel. Because those cannot change our lives. Those cannot utterly transform us. This can Because of the author. That is why we are transformed by this. It is a blessing to have this word. Now, I want us to see what the qualities of this word are, or the attributes, or what are the characteristics of this this word. The first characteristic is that it's living. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Sometimes we take that word of a of a living document, meaning that it can change. That's an argument today that you often hear in regards to the United States Constitution, that it's a living, breathing document that can be amended, and so we can uh, interpret it according to the times, and we can amend it according to the times. That's not what this means, because we can never amend the Word of God, because it is the unchanging truth of God. So what does it mean to say that it's a living word? It doesn't mean that it changes. It doesn't mean we can reinterpret it. It means it's life-giving. It is a life-giving text. In it is Life. Now, think about that. What comes from the mouth of man may be beneficial in some way, but man can never, by his own imagination, convey words that give life. And by that, I mean eternal life. Now, you could say words that preserve life, right? What do I mean by that? Someone's running towards a cliff? Stop! Don't run towards that cliff! Well, we just preserved their temporal life for a moment, but that did not give them eternal life. You see, we know that at some point we all go over the cliff, so to speak, metaphorically. What have we done with this word? What has this word done in our lives? Has it given us that eternal life that man can not give it is a life giving in its character and it conveys life to us god in his grace has given us a living and life giving word what do we do with this word has it given us life has it transformed us has it made us new You see this in 1 Peter. Peter writes of this very thing. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. How is it that you came to know Christ? If you knew Christ this morning, and you've received Christ in faith, how is it that you came to that? It was by the Word of God. And that Word of God that plants in you is a seed that is imperishable. It is eternal. It is a life-giving Word that comes to you. And I think this is what Paul means when he talks about in Romans 1.16 that the power of the Gospel is unto salvation. There's power within the Word of God because it's God's Word word it's a living word that gives life preserves life and it also reminds us this that in Christ we have eternal life that means it's a word that gives us life, reminds us that we have life, setting a flood of assurance into our soul we want to be reminded of the truth of your salvation, to have assurance, to give you comfort, to remove anxieties from your life, this word does it. This is the word that does it for you. It's not the word of Oprah. It's not the word of some pop psychologist or Dr. Phil. That will not give you life. That often communicates death. This is a life-giving word and it reminds you that you have life, that you can sleep at night. But it's also active, and what does that mean? That means it's, it's efficacious. What does efficacious means? It means it produces its intended purposes. It produces results. This word that gives life, it actually accomplishes something. We see that it accomplishes in giving life, but as we will also see, it, it, it also condemns, and it accomplishes that as well. It's active. It means it's working. It fulfills the purposes for which it was intended. You, you think of a passage like Isaiah 55. In verse 11, we read this so shall, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is a a statement about God's word going out and it will accomplish what it intends. So oftentimes we think of that verse as meaning that it produces salvation and we only relegate that verse to that. We say God's word will not return void. That is true, and we say amen to it. But does that mean that everyone hears the word is saved? No. So did it fail? Did God's word fail? No. It didn't. It accomplished judgment in the heart of the person that rejects it. His word never fails. It just may not return in the way that we wanted, but it always returns according to His purposes. Now, this is God who says this. This is the God who cannot change. This is the God who does not lie, is the one that says that His Word always accomplishes its purposes. When it's sent out, it does something even when it's rejected, it's still accomplishing something. The next thing we see is that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think this is the part of the verse that we're so most familiar with is that it is a sword, and we see in Ephesians, Paul calls uh, the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. You see that terminology in many places. But I think this comes... From Hosea in chapter six, verse five, "Therefore I have hewn them in them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth." Speaking of that, that visual of a sword. And that was the idea that the Hebrews would have had of the word of God, was that idea of a slicing sword. And I think that this original audience, when they heard this, they would have have picked up on that imagery of a sword. And let me give you the reason why. Remember, the, the reference or the context has been specifically that generation of Israelites that rejected God in the wilderness. They heard his word, and they rejected it. We read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, that they have not obeyed my voice. God says that. They have not obeyed my voice. Then it goes on to say this God says this to them. Where he says, For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. How did the wilderness generation fall? Many of them fell by the sword. And the context is this, they have not obeyed my voice. There's an intentional point there being made that they rejected God's word and they literally came under the sword. But we who reject God's word come under the sword of his wrath for all of eternity. That's the point that it's making They had the word, they were offered life by his word, but they actually literally received death by doing what with his word? Rejecting it. Friends, let us us pay attention to this word. It's a life-giving word that gives us life, that gives us comfort, that, that is a balm to our aching soul, but it's a sword as well. It is a sword, and I want you to notice that it's not just any sword. It's described as sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just a sharp sword, but it's the sharpest of swords. It's one that doesn't grow dull. Has this word ever grown dull to you? No, because the the sword is ever sharp and ever the sharpest sword. And it's also two-edged, which means this, there's no point on this sword where it does not slice. The, The entire blade of the sword is sharp and can slice at any point on the sword. There's no safe place to grab the blade. That's the picture of it. That means that every point of Scripture, follow this out with me, every point of Scripture can slice. What about those genealogies in 1 Chronicles? It slices. It slices. What about those obscure passages that most people might not have even ever read or maybe they just passed through and it, it meant nothing to them. Well, what does God tell us about that? It slices. It's a sword. Let me give you an example of it. Let me read this passage to you. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's an obscure passage of scripture. You probably haven't memorized that one. You you probably don't have it on a plaque on your wall to remind you and give your home comfort in your home, do you? You know what's interesting about that verse? In my estimation, the most important theologian of the of the last 50 years was converted by that verse. R. C. Sproul read that verse and received Christ. In fact, Stephen Nichols, in his biography, says this. He says, quote, It cut our sea in two. He saw himself as that tree. He saw himself in a state of torpid paralysis, fallen, rotting, and decaying. That obscure passage of Scripture was used by God to convert one of the most influential servants of the church of the last 50 years. That's incredible. R.C. said this himself, quote, I think I'm probably the only person in church history who was converted to Christ by that verse. He's probably right. But it does prove the point, doesn't it? God's Word is a sword. All of it is. You know, we sometimes think that it's it's just John 3.16, which is a wonderful, beautiful verse. But we also have Ecclesiastes 11.3 that pierces as well. You see, we never know how God is going to use any one portion of his Bible or how he's going to use any one verse. But what we do need to know is that every verse is his. And every verse is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, what does a sword do? Or rather, to ask the question differently, what is it that God's Word does? Well, we're told here, it it pierces. That's what it says. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. That's showing us the depth to which God's Word works. It probes us to the depths of our very soul. Piercing through... By overcoming resistance. God's word pierces through deception. God's word brings forth light into darkness. God's word pierces all the way to the division, it says, of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Sometimes people have tried to make theological points about that. Don't dig too deep there because you're missing the point. The whole point is is it can divide that which cannot be divided. It divides that which it cannot by any other means be divided by anything but by God's word. But there's something else that we have to know about this piercing action of a sword. If we go about swinging that sword, guess what happens? It comes swinging back on you too. This is a sword. When you handle that sword, you're careful with the sword, aren't you? Because what does a sword do? It slices, it pierces, it cuts. And if we use it to do that, guess what it comes back and does to us? This is a moment of pastoral confession I was preaching a a, a couple of Sunday nights ago and I was making a a practical point from the text about how we should respond to the word of God and I I got home, ate dinner that night after church I went to bed and I woke up at some point like maybe 2 in the morning or something I'm not doing that word I'm not following that I'm falling short there when we swing that sword, it can come back and swing at you. We need to be aware of that. Notice what it says it does. It's discerning. That means that it has an ability to judge in legal cases, there's ability to judge our hearts. That's what this Word can do to us. And if you read this Word, you experience that whenever you do read it, that it is judging our hearts. I think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God has um, insight into that area that no one else does. That is into the heart. It discerns the intentions and thoughts of the heart. That means that God's word judges the inner person and all of who they are. God searches the heart by his word. That means this God knows your heart. Now, if you breathed a sigh of relief knowing that God knows your heart, for me that is horrifying. because God does know my heart. Here's the thing is I can fool you, you can fool me, and we can fool one another, and we could fool the world, but we can never fool God because he does know our heart. He knows exactly what's in our heart. And praise God that he gives us a new heart, right? And that is a work of his. God looks upon the heart, he knows the heart. And that is what God requires of us. Let me show you how I think this is so important. Think of the description in Matthew 23 of the Pharisees that Jesus gives. That kind of gives us an idea of the heart. He gives these seven woes of the Pharisees. Woe to you hypocrites, he says to them seven times. But as he begins that series of seven woes, six of them, he describes an outward characteristic of the Pharisees by which they fooled the people they were great missionaries they were great tithers they were great gatekeepers of the word of god but jesus pronounces on them woes which is a curse why outwardly the cup looked clean but what does jesus say to them inwardly it was filthy he knows our heart and the outward part is not what he wants. You think of the Sermon on the Mount as another illustration. Getting into chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with our relationship with God. He deals with our giving. He deals with our prayer life. And he deals with our fasting. And it's, it's fascinating to me how Jesus says this. Be careful how you pray. Be careful how you fast. Be careful how you give. Don't do it like... And he gives an example of who not to do it like. And he says these words, he concludes it with, For your Father knows in secret what you do. What is that to say? He knows the heart. Go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God is going to flood the whole entire world. Why? Because the intentions of their what? Heart was bent upon evil all the time. God knows the heart. He's the only one that knows the heart. He knows that secret thing, the outward parts, cannot fool God. Our outward actions cannot fool God, for he sees who we truly are. You see, this word, it actually pierces through our exterior like a hot knife slicing through butter. There's really no resistance. The next thing that we see about this word is that it's an all-seen word. It's all seeing No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That, that word naked in the NSAB, it's open. Is how the NSAB translates it. And what it means is that you're face-to-face with God. It means there's no covering. There's no barrier. Uh, there's no ability to conceal from God. That's what it means to be before Him, to be open before Him, to be, as it says, naked before Him. It means that there is no concealment. We we can't hide behind something. We're bare before God. It exposes, we see. Before God, there is nothing that we can hide behind. Rather, He exposes the intentions of our heart. He knows whether we're in faith or not. He knows whether we're resting in our works. He knows if we draw our confidence, confidence by doing good things or by going to church. He knows whether we are truly resting in Christ or not. He knows the heart and his word exposes all of these and this idea of faith is actually the context because God was speaking through these words here to a group of Christians facing persecution looking at going back to the old covenant looking at going back and not resting in Christ and he warns them don't reject this word don't move away from Christ, but cling to Christ. Cling to this Word. And this Word exposes us, which means this. There's no neutrality before God's Word. And what do I mean by that? Is we either receive it or we reject it. You can't like take a middle ground. You think of... What Christ says to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, I wish you were either hot or cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. You know why I said that to Laodicea? Because the water there was bitter. And they had this custom of spitting the water out because it was bitter. That's what God thinks of neutrality. We receive the word or we reject the word. Those are our options. This word is, we are bare before it, it exposes us. And as the Puritan William Gouge says, every sermon that you hear will either bring you nearer to heaven or put you off further from it. Remember, God's word is always effectual because it is active. So how do we respond to God's word? Does this not awaken us to pay attention to the word? May we be like that newborn infant that uh, Peter describes that longs for the pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. May we crave that word of God. May it be to us sweeter than honey as the psalmist says. May it be our greatest treasure. There's something else I want to bring out in the text is this is universal. This applies to all people universally. Notice what it says, no creature is hidden from its sight, but all but all are naked and exposed before it. It means no one can claim privilege before God. No one can go before God and say I didn't know. In fact, Nature itself tells us the invisible attributes of God, as we're told in Romans. But men, by their sin, suppress the truth. No one can stand before God and say, I didn't know. This is a universal application to all people. So here's the thing that we need to be warned of, just like this church here in the first century, is we could be good at putting Out a a good exterior before others we could have the exterior of the building look really good but God knows what's on the inside let us be awakened by this word and we can assert all of these wonderful truths of the word because of its author God himself has given us a book what is the word of God The Bible is the Word of God. You were supposed to be quicker on that. (laughs) The Bible is the Word of God. And for a church to be truly effective, it must have the Word. As we studied for a couple of weeks, one of the marks of the church is the pure preaching, pure doctrine of the church. That's a mark of the church. Without it, there goes the church. Our, Our number one focus ought to be this Word of God because there's, there's, there's nothing else that we could say is living and active like God's Word. So our number one priority in this church must always be the Word of God. And for growth to take place in your life, what must be your priority? It's God's Word. You always got to be putting yourself before God's Word because God's Word is living it's active, it's a double-edged sword. There's nothing else in your life that you have that, that could be said about. If we want to grow in our faith, it's necessary that we have this word. Now, some people say, well, I just rely on the Holy Spirit. If I hear something like that, I'll ask them, well, how's your reading scripture time? If I get the answer... I just am waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak, then my answer is, no, you're not. If you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak, you'll open His Word, where He speaks to you. Think about what the Holy, what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Jesus goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. How does he guide us into all truth? The word that the Holy Spirit gives us. We have been doing nothing but studying the Holy Spirit's word this morning. If I want to know what the Holy Spirit says, then I ought to open his word that he's given me. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart through His Word. We never separate the Spirit from the Word. And second is this, is we can never separate the Word of God from the eternal Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. He was with Him in beginning. Meaning that this Word that is living, that is active, that is a double-edged sword we can't separate it from Jesus. It's always pointing us to Jesus. Where do we have eternal life? In Jesus. What was, who, who was being referenced in, in Genesis at the very beginning? Jesus. Who's being prophesied throughout the whole prophecy of the Old Testament? Jesus. What are the Gospels about? Jesus. What are, what are Paul's letters about? How you're supposed to live in light of knowing Jesus. We can never separate this word. From Jesus, the, the word of God points to and exalts the eternal word of God. So to separate Jesus from the word is to not know the word. So as we look at this text this morning, we could apply all of these truths to Jesus himself. Living and active in a double-edged sword. So the question becomes for us this morning... What do you do with the eternal word of God? A word is a vehicle of communication. How did the Father make himself known? Through his Son, the eternal word. What do you do with Jesus? You will not know Jesus apart from his word God has made himself known to us by his word, and the fullest revelation of himself is his son, the exact imprint of his nature. And where do we read of the glorious truths of the gospel? That the Father sent the Son, and that the Son lived a perfect life on our behalf. And that he went to the cross, and upon the cross bore the judgment of God, where he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, that if we would by faith trust in him, it would be accounted to us as righteousness. Where do we read of those glorious truths but the word of God, about the eternal word of God? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Creature, He is a new creation. Now there is no condemnation for anyone that is in Christ. Where do we learn those wonderful truths? The Word of God. Where do we learn the wonderful truths that He who has called you, who gives you to the Son, the Son will raise up on the final day, that He who created you and gave you new life and brought you regeneration, that you were born again to trust in Christ, and He will keep you to the end. Where do we learn those wonderful truths? Is there any day of the week, is there any hour of the day where we don't need to hear that word? That we don't need to be encouraged by that reminder? The world may hate me, but the Father loves me because he sent his Son for me. Where do we learn those truths? This living, active word that is a double-edged sword. The slices any way you cut it. We learn that from this word let us pay attention to this word that God so graciously gave us and that we here we have free access to this word of God no one's in want of a Bible let us not take it for granted because of the author and that we cannot separate the Son from this Word. Let us not take our great Savior for granted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that you have given us in your Word, this Word that you have given us to reveal yourself and the plan of redemption for your people. We praise you that you, you do not stop at just the plan of redemption, but you show us a full redemption, and that this Word also transforms us daily to be closer to the image of Christ, May we as a church always treasure this word, and may we as individuals love this word more than the greatest treasures that this world could provide. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.